This is the 10th in a series of messages called Navigating Uncertainty. I'm talking about how to navigate the uncertainty of our times with the pandemic, uh, the economic lockdown, the social unrest, and the election. Whether you're a teenager or a senior citizen, single, married, divorced, or widowed, a Christian or not a Christian, you can feel the turbulence in our country. I've suggested that to help people navigate uncertainty, a leader must provide four things. Must provide clarity, present choices, display humanity, and give hope. Now, the one of these I've probably talked about the most is provide clarity. As a pastor, I cannot provide you certainty about what's going to happen in the weeks ahead, but I can give you with clarity that God is sovereign over this country. And he will see us through. Uh, one of the examples I've used during this series is uh, Chinese uh, uh, Communist Party uh, began the Cultural Revolution in China in 1966. Their goal was to get rid of all intellectual, educated people and to stamp out Christianity. Many Christians were killed, but the main thing they did was to move Christians from the cities to small rural communities. And in the process, these Christians took Christ with them, and missiologists believe today that there are 300 million Christians in China. So God used that situation. When I say God is sovereign, it doesn't mean He agrees with what's going on on the earth, but He can use whatever situation, whatever government, to accomplish His purposes. The one I've talked about the second most is give hope, and I want to talk about that again today. To help us in this series, we have turned to the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. So far, Jeremiah has talked mostly about judgment against sin, against Judah and her surrounding nations. Uh, today, he's going to bring us a message of hope. Uh, to this point, we've looked mostly at the stern and salty message of judgment against Judah for her worshiping false idols of the nations around them. In chapter 30, Jeremiah finally brings us a message of hope. He announces God's plan to graciously restore His people from exile. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave their forefathers to possess, says the Lord. Some of the greatest prophecies in all the Bible are found in Jeremiah. Some of these prophecies refer to the return of people from exile to Judah. Uh, some of them refer to the first coming of Christ, His birth, death, and resurrection. And then some refer to the second return of Christ. In that day, this is a phrase used uh, throughout the Bible, throughout prophecies, to refer to the end times. They begin with the birth of Christ. So we are living in the end times, and they are fulfilled with the final judgment. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will break the yoke off their necks and will tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God. Their leader will be one of their own, their ruler will arise from among them. This is Jesus Christ. I will bring him near, and he will come close to me. 
For who is he will devote himself to be close to me, declares the Lord. Now, this is a, a, only Jesus Christ can bring the fulfillment of this prophecy. Then Jeremiah announces God's plan to restore Israel and Judah to the land. I will build you up again, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin Israel. They will come with weeping. So the people would come back to Judah weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. The purpose of the exile is redemptive. God doesn't send them into exile because he doesn't care about them. It's because he loves them and wants to get their attention so he can restore them. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Now, I've told you there are several very famous passages in Jeremiah. This is certainly on his top, top ten list. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Uh, this begins one of the most famous passages in Jeremiah, and I want to reflect on it today. It's a prophecy about the coming of Christ and his establishment of a new covenant. This new covenant that Christ will begin will not be just with Israel, but with all people around the world. Uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ brings us hope. As a result, in the midst of the uncertainty in our times, we can have hope and give other people hope. Christians are to be hopeful people. We're not pessimists. We exude joy and hope wherever we go. I'd like to make four reflections about why the gospel that Jeremiah introduces us gives us hope. First, we can have hope because Jesus Christ does not overlook sin. Some people who want us to have hope give us no basis for hope. They just want us to have positive thinking. It's hope in hope. Jesus Christ does not do that. He gives us hope, but He does not overlook sin. The theme of most of the chapters in Jeremiah we've considered so far have been God's judgment against sin. This is what the Lord says, your wound is incurable, your injury beyond healing. He's talking to the people of Judah. There is no one to plead your cause, no remedy for your sore, no healing for you. All your allies have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. I have stuck you as an enemy would and punished you as would the cruel because your guilt is so great and your sins so many. But all who devour you will be devoured. All your enemies will go into exile. Those who plunder you will be plundered. All who make spoil of you, I will despoil. God announces that Assyria, Egypt, and Babylon will themselves be punished. This is a fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Why do you cry out over your wound, your pain that has no cure? Because of your great guilt and many sins, I have done these things uh, to you. Uh, God says your wound is uncurable. It's like your doctor telling you your cancer is inoperable. 
before we can understand God's grace, we must understand His judgment against sin. That a holy God must mete out judgment against sin. Several years ago, I met with two different men at different times during a week. Both had had their, we- uh, their marriages blow up the week before. Their wives had walked out on them. Neither one of them were Christians, and uh, they uh, um, confessed that they, did, they knew next to nothing about Christ, and they had never pursued Him at any time in their life. But now they were open. They were eager to know Christ. And so before the meeting with each of them was over, I prayed with them, and they committed their lives to Christ. Why were they so open? Because they knew they had blown it in their marriage. They hadn't loved their wife the way they should have. And they realized that the repairs they needed in their marriage were beyond anything they could do. They needed an intervention from God. I couldn't promise them that their marriage would be restored, but they knew that whatever happened, they needed His forgiveness, and they needed God to come into their lives and give them a a new start. We're not ready for God's grace until we admit our sin. You see why it's important to hear the word of judgment before we're ready for the word of grace? Remember the story of the woman at the well in John 4? Jesus tells her that he gives living water and she asks for it. Jesus says, go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You've had four husbands and the man you're now living with is not your husband. He he reveals that she's had a series of broken relationships. Why bring it up? Why not leave well enough alone? She said she wanted living water. Why does he judge her? So she will know that the offer of living water is for her just the way she is. Jesus breaks through her exterior shell and reveals her series of broken relationships, her number of bad choices, so that she will know that that's the person God offers living water. That's why true hope begins with judgment against sin. A few weeks ago, I quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was put in prison in 1937 for speaking out against uh, Adolf Hitler in World War II. The irony of Bonhoeffer's life is that he was executed uh, on the direct order of Heinrich Himmler one day before the British liberated their concentration camp. While he was in prison, he wrote a number of letters to his parents and his brother-in-law, and they uh, are compiled in a book called Letters and Papers from Prison. He writes to his brother-in-law, My thoughts and feelings seem to be getting more and more like those of the Old Testament. I'm giving you my reason now why we've spent all these weeks in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah. It is only when one submits to God's law that one may speak of grace. It is only when God's wrath and vengeance are hanging as grim realities over our heads and the heads of our enemies that something of what it means to love and forgive and be forgiven can reach our hearts. In my opinion, it's not Christian to want to take our thoughts and feelings too quickly and too directly from the New Testament. 
That's why you need to study the Old Testament. One cannot and must not speak the last word until he has spoken the next to the last word. Bonhoeffer and Jeremiah pronounce the message of judgment against sin so we can hear the message of grace. Some people want to throw out all passages in the Bible about judgment against sin. They only want a God of grace. These passages on judgment against sin are for you because now you know you're the one who's being loved and being offered grace. You've heard the next to the last word, now you can hear the last word. America is a great country, but to become a greater country, we must not overlook our sins. The story of America is neither wholly good nor wholly bad, but is far more heroic than tragic, far more representative of justice than injustice. A majority white country that mistreated Indians, once enslaved black Americans and suppressed women, regularly elects black Americans and women to high office. In fact, women are the majority in our electorate. And black Americans regularly outvote their percentage of the population, demonstrating the durability and growth of the American ideal that all people are created equal. Our country has liberated billions of people across the globe from tyranny and taken in tens of millions of people wanting to establish their American dream and become the engine of growth that powers the entire world. The story of America is one of the great stories in human history. America was founded on great principles. America struggled to live up to those principles. But with each step towards those principles, the world has become better off because of America. But we must not overlook the shadows and curses of our past. Only then can we move forward to become greater. Second, we can have hope because Jesus Christ provides us with a permanent solution for the forgiveness of sins. The Mosaic Covenant uh, offers only a temporary solution for sin. Let's, listen to what Jeremiah writes. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the houses of Israel. Now, this is one of his most famous um, passages in, in Jeremiah. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Uh, the Mosaic Covenant requires animal sacrifices to be given when you've sinned. What happens when a person leaves the altar forgiven, and then sins again. They need to offer an, another animal sacrifice. The Mosaic Covenant is deficient at its best 
God realized he needed to provide a permanent solution for sin for all people for all time. How could he accomplish this? He took the sin of the world on himself. He came as a man and took it on the cross. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up to David a righteous branch. This is Jesus Christ. A king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called. The Lord, our righteousness. Uh, This prophecy about Jesus Christ was given 600 years before he was born as a baby. Little did Jeremiah recognize how far this new covenant would extend. It wouldn't just be for Israel, but for all people in the world. Uh, It's a covenant between any willing person and God. Extends to Americans, Russians, Chinese, all people everywhere. So the Apostle Paul can write, this righteousness comes... by God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Uh, This is the new covenant. Jesus died for all sins. But the forgiveness does not extend to you until you ask Christ to forgive your sins. He won't force himself on you. Have you asked Christ to forgive your sins? Third, we can have hope because Jesus Christ changes us from the inside out. The gospel would not give us hope if once we give our lives to Christ, we're only forgiven, but there's no power inside of us to change. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. When we thank Jesus Christ for dying for our sins, ask Him to forgive our sins, He comes in and gives us His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit writes His law on our... uh, He puts His law in our minds and writes His law in our hearts. Um, He gives us the power and the the desire, uh, a new conscience, so we're sensitive to Him and what God wants us to do. Nancy Hesch, in her book, The Truth Comes Out, tells about being married to her husband, Don, for 25 years. Uh, they had five children. seemed like they had the perfect marriage. Then Don was diagnosed with AIDS and revealed that he had been living uh, throughout their marriage a secret homos- uh, homosexual lifestyle. Nancy was devastated with his deception. Shortly after his death, uh, their 18-year-old son Nathan was killed in a car accident. And that threw her into months, really years, of personal darkness. Just as she was coming out of this long period of growth and healing, her youngest daughter, Anne, announced uh, she was living in a lesbian relationship with a well-known Hollywood star. Well, it made Nancy so angry that after all she'd gone through with her husband and Nathan's death, that her daughter would do this. And so she just wanted to shut her out of her life, have nothing to do with her. But God convicted her. That is no way to rebuild your relationship with your daughter. 
And so she flew out to L.A. to be with Anne and to get, know, get to know all her Hollywood friends. As a result, she's maintained a good relationship with her daughter. How did she make that change? God changed her from the inside out. Fourth, we can have hope because Jesus Christ promises us a bright future. Jeremiah 32 is one of the most fascinating chapters in all of Jeremiah. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Uh, at the beginning of most chapters, uh, Jeremiah le- uh, shows us that he's not just a prophet, but he's an historian. He tells us exactly when each prophecy is anchored in history. This one occurs when Babylon has uh, Jerusalem under siege, surrounded just before the fall of Jerusalem in, five, in 586 B.C. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Uh, according to the Old Testament law, a person could not sell a piece of property until he had offered it to the relatives. God tells Jeremiah, When your uncle offers it to you, Buy it. Anathoth is Jeremiah's childhood home. The irony is that Anathoth is located eight miles north of Jerusalem, precisely where the Babylonian army is camped. Now, I don't know what your investment strategies are, what your criteria is for making a, in, uh, real estate investments, but it seems to me by any stretch of the imagination, this is an unwise investment. Ju- uh, Jeremiah has been preaching for years that Babylon is going to destroy Judah. They have the city surrounded. Pl- uh, property prices are plummeting. And then God gives him this insider tip to make this investment and buy this property in Anathoth. Jeremiah is asked to spend his savings on property that within months will be worthless. I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field at Anathoth for my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I gave this deed to Baruch. Baruch is his scribe, records all of Jeremiah, son of Nerea, the son of Messiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, and of the witnesses who had signed the deed, and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. Many people witnessed this transaction. Uh, The people must have thought Jeremiah mad for buying this property. His foolish purchase is the talk of the town. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. Now comes the prophecy stated as succinctly as possible. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Next, Jeremiah prays. He makes the purchase, as God told him to do, but now he's telling God his misgivings. 
This is vintage Jeremiah. He's real upfront about his feelings. This is where I get this whole point that for a leader to help people through times of uncertainty, they have to be real. They have to display their humanity. I tell the staff almost every week, ever since this pandemic started, we've been going like one week at a time in making decisions. You can't plan ahead. Jeremiah is very upfront about his feelings. We feel like at this point we really know him. See how the siege ramps are built. So he's saying to God, you know, are you sure you want me to buy this property? They are built up to take the city. Because of the sword, famine, and plague, the city will be handed over to the Babylonians who are attacking it. What you said has happened. I bought the field, as you now see. And though the city will be handed over to the Babylonians, you, O sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed. He's saying, God, are you sure I'm doing the right thing buying this property? Isn't this kind of a stupid time to buy property? Lord, I'll buy the field, but I want you to know I think it's a really bad idea. God replies, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? God says, can't I bring property values up again? Can you imagine the impact Jeremiah's purchase had on the people of Anathoth and Jerusalem? People had to think, Jeremiah really believes there's a future for Judah. That God's not done with us yet. Aren't you impressed with Jeremiah's faith? Jeremiah dares to trust in the promises of God. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Jeremiah to the people during World War II. In his book, Letters and Papers from Prison, which he finished in December of 1942, he's reflecting on what it's like to be in a, in a world created by Nazi Germany. For most people, the compulsory abandonment of planning for the future, in other words, it's, it's so uncertain our times, we can't plan very far out in front, means that they are forced back into living just for the moment irresponsibly, frivolously, or resignedly. He said that's one position. Some few dream longingly of better times to come and try to forget the present. That's another way you can handle uncertainty, he says. We find both of these courses equally impossible. And there remains for us only the very narrow way, often extremely difficult to find. Listen to what he says. And that is the way of living every day as if it is, were our last day. And yet living in faith and responsibility as though there were to be a great future. Now he quotes our text in Jeremiah. Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land, proclaims Jeremiah. In a paradoxical contrast to the, the, the prophecies of doom that Jeremiah brought, he speaks this one just days before Jerusalem's destroyed. Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought. It's a sign to the people of Judah of a fresh start that God's not done with them. Bonhoeffer then goes on to defend his, his stance as a, uh, in the tradition of Jeremiah during difficult days in World War II in Nazi Germany. 
Think of the relevance of His words to us today in the uncertainty, the turbulence of our times. It is wiser to be pessimistic. It is a way of avoiding disappointment and ridicule. And so wise people condemn optimism. You hear people like that today. But the essence of optimism is not its view of the present, but the fact that it is inspiration of life and hope when others give in. Optimism, which is will for the future, should never be despised, even if it's proved wrong a hundred times. It is health and vitality, and the sick man has no business to impugn it. There are people who regard it as frivolous, and some Christians think it impious for anyone to hope and prepare for a better earthly future. They think the meaning of present events is chaos, disorder, and catastrophe. There were people in 1943 that thought World War II meant the end of the world. Judgment Day was coming. And there are people saying the same thing today in 2020. In the resignation or pious escape, in resignation or pious escapism, they surrender all responsibility for reconstruction and for future generations. Now, the last line is one of Dietrich Bronhorst's most famous of all of his writings. It may be that the judgment day will dawn tomorrow. Christ could come tomorrow. We don't know. In that case, we shall gladly stop working for a better future, but not before. That's a Jeremiah for the 21st century. He's willing to keep working for the betterment of the world even when things look grim. There's a man who decided to invest in Onothoth. What's your Onothoth? When you put your faith in Christ, you're investing in Onothoth, for it shows that you believe the promises of God. When you serve in the church, you're investing in Onothoth because you believe that the church is the hope of the world. When you hang in there in your marriage, even when things look bleak, you're investing in Onothoth for you believe in doing what God says is the right thing to do, even when it looks so painful. When you give money to God's work, you're investing in Onothoth for you're investing in the future and trusting in the promises of God. Do you trust in God's promises? Are you hanging in there like Jeremiah? Are you a symbol of hope in your family? It's your work, your school, in your neighborhood. We can have hope and give other people hope. Father, thank you for Jeremiah, that he was a person of hope in the midst of very dark times. <clears throat> I would guess their times were as dark as we are in today. And Father, we want to be people of hope in the midst of the uncertainty and tumult of our times. We don't want to be pessimistic. We want to be joyful and optimistic about the future and exude hope. And we commit ourselves to that right now. I want to give you an opportunity to pray. Say something like that to God. You want to be a person of hope today and this week. You've never given your life to Christ. 
this would be a great time to invite him to come into your life, forgive your sins, and tell him you want to make him Lord of your life. You pray. Father, thank you that we can be people of hope even in difficult times. And we commit ourselves to, to being that way this week because we put our trust in you and in your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name.